Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is journalist and author Caleb Mopin. Caleb is a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst. He has traveled extensively in the Middle East and in Latin America. Caleb was involved with the Occupy Wall Street movement from its early planning stages and has been involved in many struggles for social justice. He's an outspoken advocate of international friendship and cooperation, as well as 21st century socialism. Caleb doesn't shy away from the word communism when explaining his political views, and he advocates that the USA move forward towards some form of socialism with American characteristics rooted in the democratic and egalitarian traditions often found in American history. Caleb argues that the present crisis can only be abetted with an American rebirth in which the radicalism and community-centered values of the country are reestablished and strengthened. Caleb recently wrote the introduction to a new English version edition of Muammar Gaddafi's Green Book. I welcome Caleb to Savage Minds. You have recently spoken about your involvement in anti-war movements, uh, especially during the Libya intervention. And you also have written the introduction to the new English version edition of Gaddafi's Green Book. So I was very interested if you could tell our listeners what your introduction has to offer for the English language reader and what are some of the misrepresentations about what went down in Libya? Well, um, I first heard of Gaddafi's Green Book when listening to national public radio in the United States. And it was during the time when the NATO bombing campaign against Libya was happening. And they quoted one sentence from Gaddafi's Green Book uh, to give the impression that Gaddafi's Green Book, uh, the political document on which Libya's socialist government was based, uh, to give the impression that this was a book that simply was preaching misogyny and hatred for women um, and, uh, and sexism and such. Um, and at the time, I was opposing the Libyan war, so I went and read the Green Book and what I found was a completely different document that was completely different than how it had been represented on national public radio. Um, the document, uh, the Green Book, you know, it talks about democracy. It talks about socialism. It talks about the social basis of the third universal theory. Um, and it's a very, very well-written political text uh, that gives great insight into how the socialist government of Libya was organized and how they were able to raise living standards so dramatically in Libya. Um, you know, I mean, Libya went from being a very, very poor country to having the highest life expectancy on the African continent, vastly expanded its gross domestic product. It built the world's largest irrigation system, the Great Man-Made River. It provided medical care to the entire population. It provided education to the entire population. And it was so prosperous that prior to 2011, people from all across the African continent were trying to get into Libya. Uh, now, since NATO has been bombed into our global free market, free trade system, uh, Libyans are drowning in the Mediterranean trying to get out of the mess created by the NATO intervention, uh, by the dominance of Western capitalism. There are two rival governments there fighting for power, um, and it has been a disaster. And so I felt that uh, as somebody who had learned so much from the Green Book, it would be necessary to have an edition of Gaddafi's Green Book available to the public uh, with an introduction explaining the Libyan war, 
the NATO intervention, what happened, and kind of introducing it to American readers. It was primarily directed at an American audience, though many people have purchased it in Britain and in other English-speaking countries. And I'm really glad that it's available. Um, the, it is the official Libyan government translation, uh, which is no longer copyrighted. Uh, so there was no copyright issue with it. There are some other translations out there, but this was the official Libyan government one, which is no longer copyrighted. So I was able to, to publish the Green Book by Gaddafi with my own introduction. So people should really check it out. And it has it has sold quite a bit, um, you know, many, many copies of it. I get on there and, and it's almost every day I sell, you know, 10 or 12 or six or seven. Um, you know, it's a lot of people are very curious even now about what happened in Libya, why it happened. Um, you know, there's the whole Benghazi scandal and there's a lot of questions still people have. And I point out in my introduction that prior to the NATO intervention, Libya was a very, very prosperous socialist society with its flaws, of course, but, but a prosperous socialist society. And the NATO intervention had very, very negative consequences. Well, I'm glad you, you've clarified this because I have on my wall since last Wednesday, something special happened then. And uh, there's been a war going on about the capital, about bipartisan politics in the States. And one thing that has struck me time and time over for the last four presidents is how our political system has become so divisive almost as if we're watching a game, a football game, you know, and everyone's choosing sides. And of course, you know, when uh, Hillary Clinton's, uh, let's say, actions in Libya transpired, of course, she comes out saying, I have no regrets. That was, you know, her famous statement. But there's a lot of Democrat voters out there who do not understand the implications for what Obama's administration committed to in Libya. Zero. All they can say is a misogynist country, Muslim oppresses, Islam oppresses women, um, but he had some really cool bodyguards. Why has this disinformation traveled so perfectly to the ears of so-called leftists? And I'm putting that in quotes because we can discuss that too. But. Sure. Well, I think that um, what's really disturbing is that in the last decade in the or so in the United States, we've seen that the narratives of the right wing uh, about military intervention being necessary, about, um, you know, regime change being necessary. Uh, the neoconservative narratives of the Bush years uh, have now become very much the property of the left. It's the left that has adopted these narratives. Um, and it's almost, interventionism is presented almost in an activist liberal way. Uh, Samantha Power, uh, who was Barack Obama's UN ambassador, uh, she worked in the Obama White House and was very key in pushing for the intervention in Libya. Uh, Samantha Power, uh, you know, she was tied in with uh, Invisible Children, which was a, a group that, that, you know, put out this film, Coney 2012, trying to promote the US military presence in Africa. Um, and that, that now it seems like interventionism is sold in a very slick, liberal way, um, where, whereas you have on the right uh, some more isolationist voices that, that don't want the USA to be so globally involved. Um, but, you know, there are some, there are some details about, about Libya that, that, that shouldn't be forgotten. I mean, the, the bomber in Manchester, that horrendous bombing that took place, where, you know, I mean, these conflict goers were killed. Everyone was just shocked by horrendous, how horrendous that was. What got no coverage in Western media was that the bomber himself 
had been an anti-Gaddafi fighter. The U.S. government and the British government had given him weapons to go with his father to fight against Gaddafi. And this is the kind of person that is, is being trained and supported by the U.S. government in their regime change operations. Gaddafi was very opposed to al-Qaeda. Gaddafi was very opposed to ISIS-type organizations. Um, and the people that the U.S. government is training in order to bring down independent socialist governments around the world um, are al-Qaeda-like, ISIS-like extremists. And, and you know this bombing that happened in Manchester um, it's likely it wouldn't have happened if the U.S. government had not, you know, worked very, very hard to facilitate uh, the indoctrination of of people and and training these these extremists to use against the Libyan government. So uh, these important details are left out of the narratives, and because interventionism is framed in this kind of slick, uh, you know, marketable way, because the Guevara esque aesthetics have been hijacked. This was a big a big plan of Zbigniew Brzezinski. He worked very, very hard to, to pull this off. The late Cold War is very important to study um, but because the Gaveran, uh, you know, Gavera-esque aesthetics, uh, the revolutionary uh, aesthetics have been hijacked by imperialism. Um, and because socialist countries often present themselves to their populations in a somewhat conservative way, there's a huge amount of ideological confusion. And that leads to a situation where leftists support wars Indeed. In fact, I would argue <clears throat> that this shift happened in a paradigm similar to what we're living now with the COVID situation. I compare the suspension of habeas corpus post 9-11 to what's happening to a lot of civil liberties right now, uh, not just within the U.S., all over the EU. Um, you know, post 9-11, ironically or not, there was this domino effect that happened immediately. The king of Morocco started clamping down on quote unquote ex extremists. We saw this happening also in, in Tunisia. And it became very clear that the US was giving a model for other countries to follow. Then we saw this again with Obama's administration ushering in the age of drone warfare. Uh, you know, who's to tell Azerbaijan not to do this to Armenia at this point? Because when the US or the UK, certain Western countries, they, they rubber stamp actions that somehow become the go-to, right? Now, my problem with what's been happening post-COVID, almost a year in the making now, is that we're seeing this very strange divide of the left and the right all over again between people who are willing to rescind certain types of human rights and others who are not. And it's falling pretty much along left and right patterns, although the left has to be put into quotes because I really have been flailing for years now over what the left is. When we're seeing Democrats who call themselves leftists, uh, they they voted for Hillary. You know, I wrote an essay uh, uh, many years ago when Hillary was running for president. You know, reminding readers about her actions in Honduras, in in Libya, and so forth. And I got some real pushback from some people because there's a lot of people who don't understand that Democrats or the Democratic Party is not a progressive party. I mean, you know, and in their minds, it's very hard to tell someone. It's almost like telling, you know, that famous Sarah Silverman uh, quote that smelly people don't know they smell. It's really hard to tell Democrats that they're not that progressive. 
how did we get here where the Democratic Party today seems to represent more of the repressive kind of stuff we saw from Jesse Helms 1980? I mean, I'm, you know, in the 1980s with the, you know, cancel culture on Robert Mapplethorpe, Cindy Sherman. And we're seeing that now. I mean, you know, in the past 72 hours, what's happened? Google and Apple have deplatformed Parler. Um, just the day before that, there was the no platforming of Trump from Facebook and Twitter. Uh, you know, I'm not here to say I like anything he's written, but we know where the curtailing of free speech has led historically. What has happened that Democrats are getting behind this kind of totalitarianism, in a sense? Well, there are two factors involved. Um, the first, I would say, is an ideological one, and the second is related to divisions among U.S. capitalists. The first thing um, is that over the course of the late Cold War, um, you know, in the 1970s, the Cold War greatly changed. I think the U.S.'s defeat in Vietnam uh, forced the United States to really alter its strategies in, in how to operate around the world. And it really led to the rise of Zbigniew Brzezinski. Uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski became the national security advisor to Jimmy Carter. And the main thing that Brzezinski tried to do was to uh, try and, you know, and, and reverse uh, and reverse very much the, the narratives that the Soviet Union and the global communist movement had very effectively used around the world. During the Vietnam War, for example, uh, many people around the world sympathized with the Vietnamese people. They saw them as a group of peasants fighting for their national liberation against the U.S. empire and the U.S. imperialists. I think that was a correct narrative. Um, and this was a narrative that hurt the United States and Vietnam. So, Zbigniew Brzezinski had the brilliant idea and brags now, um, or I mean, he's dead now, but he bragged that he gave the United, uh, he gave the Soviet Union their Vietnam in Afghanistan um, and creating a situation where the Soviet Union had to militarily intervene in Afghanistan, where, where the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan was forced to come to power really prematurely. Um, and and then was immediately facing you know you know an onslaught of of insurgency. Um, at that point, the Soviet Union was forced to send troops to back up the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. And according to Zbigniew Brzezinski, the strategy it was called the Afghan trap. And the strategy was to give the Soviet Union a Vietnam. And immediately, Hollywood movies came out portraying. Uh, the Afghans, uh, who, you know, that's al-Zarqawi, that's Osama bin Laden, portraying them as romantic heroes fighting the Soviet Union. Um, there's films like The Living Daylights, which was a James Bond film that ends with being dedicated to the Mujahideen of Afghanistan. Um, and everything was done to try and make the, the Afghan CIA operatives tied in with Saudi Arabia and Osama bin Laden, who were pouring acid on the faces of women who didn't want to wear headscarves and, and such, to portray them as if they were, they were the revolutionaries. They were the, the Viet Cong. They were, they were fighting for their liberation, and the Soviet Union was this evil empire of tanks that just crushed liberty and freedom. And uh, that narrative was very, very effective. And when it gets down to it, you know, there are two types of people who become, you know, socialists or revolutionaries or Marxists. Uh, the majority of people in the world um, at this point who become socialists or revolutionaries, uh, they are people from the middle class uh, who feel some level of alienation from society. Uh, usually they're tied in with academia. Uh, they, they tend to be, you know, located in urban centers, um, 
a lot of times they're youth, but some people do it, you know, for their whole lives. And, and you can refer to the current around the world that primarily becomes interested in socialism throughout all times, good, bad, economic times, lots of turbulence in the world. No matter what, you have a, a, what you can call a revolutionary intelligentsia. And that's people that are attracted to Marxism and socialism uh, for intellectual reasons. Um, and they tend to be very angry at the society they live in. They want to, to tear it down and create something much more just. And they're capable of great heroism. But they're always a very, very small minority in any society. Um, and that's the first group of people who become attracted to left-wing socialist and progressive ideas. However, when revolutions actually happen, when capitalism is actually overturned, it's not these people who make it. Uh, it is the broad masses of people, the overwhelming majority of the population, uh, working class people, you know, they are the ones that ultimately create socialist societies. And, and the feelings of working class people, the feelings of the broad masses of people and their desires are very different than the desires of the revolutionary intelligentsia. Um, you know, the revolutionary intelligentsia tends to favor chaos and cathartic violence uh, to correct injustice. The broad masses of people are turning to socialism because they want stability um, and they want a stable society to emerge. And its capitalism has made their lives very, very unstable. They're turning to the, to the revolutionary ideas and to socialism to save them from the chaos and instability. Uh, caused by capitalism. So they have very, very different desires. Um, and that divide, you know, the, the gap between the revolutionary intelligentsia and the broad masses of people is something that American intelligence became very aware of. And in the 1950s, the CIA launched a program called the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was about covertly manipulating left-wing intellectuals to try and expand this gap and to try and create a gap between the Soviet Union uh, and the Western intellectuals who might sympathize with them. And, you know, there was Partisan Review Magazine was funded by the CIA in the United States. Uh, in Germany, there was Der Monat. Uh, there was publications in Britain. And all of this was, you know, there was the Paris Review out of France. And all of this was covert CIA funding of Trotskyites, of anarchists, of social democrats, of all kinds of people who criticized capitalism, criticized racism, even criticized US foreign policy, but were primarily dedicated to demonizing the Soviet Union, demonizing the communist movement, and demonizing, um, demonizing populism, demonizing anyone who would rally the working class. If you read the writings of Susan Sontag, for example, she argues that communism, she says, is nothing but the most successful form of fascism. And the notion that anyone who rallies the broad masses of people, anyone who builds a, a movement among the broad masses of people is inherently a fascist. Um, and, uh, you, you know, uh, Hannah Arendt uh, is a very important writer who, you know, comes out of this period. And she was published by the CIA's Partisan Review magazine and, and covertly supported. And, you know, her writing very much presents an image of, of the goal of leftists is to protect intellectuals from the broad inferior masses. You know, the intellectuals are, are well-read and educated. And, uh, you know, she, her famous book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, talks about the Nazi Adolf Eichmann, uh, who committed horrendous crimes during the Holocaust and was executed by Israel. Um, and she portrays Adolf Eichmann, you know, she uses the term the banality of evil. And, uh, you know, if, if you look into her writing, basically what she's arguing is that deep down, average people are potential Nazis. And so all kinds of mechanisms of social control 
need to be created in order to control average people and prevent them from exercising their inherent Nazi tendencies. That's basically what she's arguing in rather coded language. It sounds on the surface level like, you know, it's an argument against conformity and it's about, about the, you know, the need for people to think critically and not just go along with the crowd. But if you really dig into what she's saying, she's saying that the broad masses of people are inferior, they are dangerous, they are conformists, they are Nazis, and that that the intellectuals need to be protected from them. And that break, that is not what Marx wrote about when he called for the workers to rise up and control the means of production. I mean, that's not what Eugene Debs and the American Socialist Party were fighting for. You know, they were not fighting to protect the intellectuals, the inferior sheep. And so there's been this whole ideological shift where leftism suddenly becomes about about controlling average people so that the intellectuals can rule and that they can be safe. And that lines up with the second you know, factor in all of this, which is a very big divide in the American ruling class. You know, in the United States, we had a long division between the rich and the ultra rich. Um, in fact, there's there's a lot written about this. Ferdinand Lundberg, the scholar who wrote about the the Rockefeller dynasty and, and where they came from, you know, he, he documented all of this. And that, you know, in the United States, the majority of wealthy people just want to make money, right? I mean, they, 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 people talk about nouveau riche, Right. They just want to make money. Right. Um, you know, they they're wealthy and, and they think they got what they had by their hard work. Anyone could be wealthy if they just work hard enough. Well, well, the ultra rich, the powerful dynasties like the Rockefellers, like the DuPonts, like the Carnegie's, they have a very different perspective. They think long term and strategically. Um, and rather than thinking in the short term about how they can make a lot of profits, they're thinking in the long term about how to, you know, how to essentially maintain their, their dominance um, and how to prevent big, dramatic global conflagrations that could possibly, you know, remove them from their, their, their seat at the center of the global economy. And um, they tend to have a more managerial perspective. Um, while they might be willing to pay a higher tax rate in the short term, uh, that's okay because they'll stay in their position at the top, right? They, they don't mind having the government in the economy because they will get the government contract. So the ultra rich have a more libertarian free market perspective, uh, or I'm sorry, the lower levels of capital, the majority of the rich have a more libertarian free market perspective. The ultra rich have a managerial perspective. And it, what it seems to have happened is that the left have kind of become the foot soldiers of the managerial bourgeoisie of Silicon Valley, of, of the Rockefellers and ExxonMobil and the big four super major oil companies and their battle with the fracking companies um, that are competing with them. And, and that's the big divide. And this pandemic especially has a situation where it seems like the ultra rich are securing their monopoly and the lower levels of capital in the United States are being demolished. Indeed, I've, I've noticed that the discussions that are happening around the election and wealth, that a lot of people are unable to actually assess first what wealth is, because I think a lot of people who are relatively wealthy would consider themselves today not so, because there seems to be this bizarre politics of considering oneself in need. I give you an example of, I've written a lot of critiques about the sharing economy because it's anything but that. I mean, words are great in our era. Words have come to take over. They're surrogates to actual action. Hence, identity politics is reigning. I'm sharing my second and third houses with people that I charge quite handsomely. 
And I, you know, I've talked about this with people. I mean, pragmatically speaking, you know, how are we supposed to address the issues of homelessness if we live in a society where people who consider themselves poor or struggling own homes? second and third homes to rent out. I mean, we have a schism there between reality of seeing one's own involvement on the ground and then the larger structures that we can address. Um, another issue that I've seen in, in recent months is how many people who claim to be on the left have absolutely zero interest in dismantling capitalism, zero attachment or understanding of class analysis. Now, I'm not, I'm not meaning that they've read Marx or Engels, although that's a help. But just, you know, I had to ask a friend the other day when, you know, she was arguing for lockdown forever until she feels safe, apparently. I said to her, well, excuse me, um, not everyone has backup income or family to hold, you know, to go to. And the way that these lockdowns are affecting us, let's say in the West, oh, believe me, they're affecting people in Southern Asia, in Southeastern Asia, in Latin America a lot because the way that our economies function are not just in these hermetically sealed jars that what what's produced you know what's made in trenton stays in trenton as that bridge says right i mean we've got uh, what trenton makes the world takes that's what the bridge says and i think in a way that's sort of like this this key to understanding how capitalism really does function today and how people will be negatively affected over the next months by these lockdowns. And I was really appalled by this kind of lack of understanding of her own material standing. And a lot of people are showing, not just this one person, but there's a lot of disconnect from that. And the Democratic Party has perfectly plied itself onto that myth of working class. The Democratic Party does not represent the working class any more than Trump did, you know? And I just I wrote a piece about this on Friday because I was really sort of angry about what happened on in, on Wednesday. I mean, you know, no one, I think in the right mind would argue Trump is, 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 has been a great leader. He's destroyed so many ideals of his own party, not to say he's, not least to say he's destroyed a lot of hope for the working classes within his own party. But I think Democrats believe that they are the only people who are ready to speak for the working class. Again, they believe this. I don't think they are ready. Um, what has happened that the Democratic Party and now President-elect Biden are believed to be the people who somehow represent the working class while what happened on Wednesday to me speaks of an aporia within this understanding. It was the very much the people on Capitol Hill, right or wrong, and a lot of them did wrong, <laughs> but they are working class and they were struggling to find, they are still struggling to find a leader and a language to express their displacement. Indeed. And, you know, many working class people saw Donald Trump as an ally against, uh, against the ruling elite. Um, and Trump is very much a demagogue and he, his policies have made middle America poorer. He's deregulated Wall Street and he's, he's, you know, he's, he's carried out horrendous policies, but he spoke against, uh, against the establishment and the media absolutely hates Donald Trump um, and considers him to be illiberal, essentially, um, that a lot of his rhetoric uh, is, is illiberal and, and considered to be out of 
excuse me, out of line with, with the interests of imperialism. So because of that, um, many working class people have rallied around Trump, seeing him as the savior. Um, and the Democratic Party, while there, you know, it seems to be a party that's more connected with labor unions, um, it very much uh, does increasingly have kind of a, a middle class attitude. It's very much the party of, of white urban uh, professionals uh, who see the working class as an inferior group of rabble uh, who threaten, threaten their freedom and liberty uh, by getting together. And that there is very much a, a country club attitude developing uh, in the in the Democratic Party. Um, Donald Trump said he wanted to make the Republican Party a party of the working class and that there's a lot of confusion going on. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing increasingly is that, you know, for years, what what they call conspiracy theories, the belief that that John F. Kennedy uh, was not, you know, killed by a lone gunman, uh, the belief that the U.S. government tells lies to get us into wars, you know, I mean, things that are considered my book to be common sense, but but are labeled conspiracy theories by the mainstream, these things were associated with, with the left, right? It was anti-war activists, it was, you know, the counterculture, hippies, protesters, you know, socialists, communists, you know, you know, if you said conspiracy theories, you thought of leftists. Now, conspiracy theories are being declared to be right-wing, um, you know, and that, uh, that, you know, and we've gotten to the point now that in left-wing circles, uh, if you say things like, hey, the U.S. government might be lying to get us into a new war, maybe we shouldn't believe what they're trying to tell us about China or about Russia and all of that. If you so much as say that, people in left-wing circles will point at you and say, that's a right-wing conspiracy theory. You're not allowed to say it. And this is exactly what the right-wing used to do, right? Um, you know, I used to talk brainwashing. And, you know, I remember during the Bush years, you know, if you said, hey, you know, uh, Osama bin Laden was was from Saudi Arabia, not Iraq, you know, Saddam Hussein doesn't have anything to do with it. The supporters of Bush and the conservatives would say, no, you hate America, must not, must not think, must not think, must not go there, you, you know, and they would just have this block like, oh, no, 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 we must support the war, we must support the invasion. That's how liberals talk now. Right. If you say if you say, hey, you know, I, I, do we really think Russia is responsible for Donald Trump getting elected? Did they really interfere in the elections? They say, no, if you criticize that, you're promoting right wing conspiracy theories must not think Russia bad, Trump bad, Russia bad. Uh, you know, if you say, hey, you know, um, do we really have evidence that China is this horrendous, you know, is committing all these horrendous crimes in the Uyghur regions. I mean, can we really trust the sources? They say, oh my God, you're a right-wing conspiracy theorist. You're genocide denying, must not think, must not think. And this, 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 this gut level defense of the establishment that certain facts cannot be discussed because if you discuss those facts, then you're quote unquote anti-American. Um, you know, that, that kind of thinking, this, you know, my country right or wrong, obey the government, obey and trust mainstream media, that used to be the neoconservative right that had almost a monopoly on that kind of thinking. Now it's the left and the Democrats that have, have cultivated that kind of monopoly. And even people on the left, like myself, who are, who are critical, you know, who, are, who maintain an anti-imperialist and socialist perspective from the left, we get called right wing all the time. On a daily basis, I get met accusing me of being a fascist, of being a, a, a Nazi, of being a crypto Trump supporter, an agent of the Trump movement. I am none of those things. Um, and I'm very clearly not any of those things if you listen to me. But but they have created this, this block where you're with us or against us. Remember George W. Bush? He said, you're with us or against us. 
That is how Biden and Kamala Harris and the Democratic Party are operating. You are with us or against us. You know, we say that that uh, capitalism is the best system in the world. We say that the USA is spreading freedom and human rights around the world with our interventions. We say that this list of countries are evil and bad and we need to overthrow their governments. And if you don't go along with that, you are a populist. You are illiberal. Um, and you are you are promoting conspiracy theories and you need to be marginalized and you need to be banned from social media and you need to be ostracized. Perhaps you need to be put in a mental hospital and psychologically uh, taken away. I mean, it's very scary. The the authoritarian tendencies of the Democratic Party. Liberals used to be the ones who questioned now liberal attitudes, Democratic Party liberal attitudes are becoming the party line in the United States. And if you go against them, whether, you know, from a conservative perspective or from a legitimately left Marxist anti-imperialist perspective, uh, you are you are in danger and they favor your suppression. Uh, yes, we saw this in the aftermath of 9-11 of from the right. But I was, I have to tell you, a lot of my friends in New York were very much on board the bomb Iraq and Afghanistan train. And I was really, I was speechless. It really uh, alienated me from certain people because I was, you know, noticing in New York City alone, I was working on a project of the 14,000 men who had been disappeared. And I was working with the ACLU at the time on this. Uh, Muslim men were being disappeared around the country. No one seemed to care. One friend said to me, what, what's going on? Are you becoming Muslim? And I said, well, no, I'm working with this community on Coney Island and Avenue H, you know, Coney Island Avenue and Avenue H. And uh, men are disappearing left, right and center there. Doesn't that bother you? And he said, well, no, um, it, our freedoms were destroyed on 9-11. And this was a leftist. And this was a person uh, who grew up in New York, uh, you know, like, left his family, came from the Caribbean, and I was really shocked. I was just like, what's going on? So I sort of started to see the rise of Democrats sentimentalizing some of what the right was putting into practice. Uh, habeas corpus, remember what happened around that. And, and then, you know, you had writers, uh, the, the big debate in the nation that took place between Saeed, Cokeburn, Chomsky, and Hitchens, if you remember that time of, you know, everyone going at it and having a go. Oh, Sontag was involved in that very briefly as well. And, you know, I kept wondering, wait, at what point are we going to just like wake up to this? We've seen it. We saw this happen. Regime change, you know, what happened in Panama with the carpet bombing there? Noriega, Noriega was our BFF at one time. Are we not doing a rinse and repeat with Saddam Hussein and the creation of Osama bin Laden, all he represents, remember those photos of Rumsfeld with Saddam Hussein. I mean, many photos, not just one. Are Americans amnesiac about our own history? Well, they are. And, um, and their history is being rewritten. And what's, what's kind of tragic about all of this is that, um, you know, while there is way more awareness of racism, Right. It used to be that if you said the United States was a country founded on racism, people would say, oh, that's anti-American. Well, now that's widely acknowledged. If you say to people, the United States, you know, committed genocide against the native people, it used to be people would deny that or, or try to justify it some way. Well, now people recognize that. Um, but what's missing is that 
the history of struggle in this country. Um, the, the understanding that while slavery was going on, there was a mass movement of people who opposed slavery, people like John Brown, uh, people like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, uh, the, the knowledge of the labor movement and how it was built, um, the knowledge of, of the civil rights struggle and the role you know, played by communists and others and has been kind of ignored. And that, that liberals, they have this, this narrative where a lot of bad things have happened in US history and we all kind of need to atone for it. And the people of middle America in the red states who vote for Trump are bad because they don't have proper guilt around these things. But they have lost sight of the fact that, that all the progress in the United States came by people questioning the status quo, by people you know, breaking the rules, going out and getting arrested and, and dissenting and, and, and protesting and, and engaging in progressive politics and going against the prevailing narrative. Right, that um, that Martin Luther King was called a Soviet agent and a homosexual in American media, um, and he was demonized, and and you know the FBI went after him and and urged him to commit suicide and blackmailed him, etc. And that that progressive struggles have involved questioning what mainstream media says, um, mobilizing the people to fight for their rights, and 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 organizing the broad masses of people that, uh, that, that, you know, that people getting into motion and fighting for their rights against the ruling elite is not fascism, right? It's not, uh, it's not I mean, people organizing and fighting for their rights, the, the labor movement, the unemployment councils of the 1930s, these things were not fascist. They were, they were the basis of progressive politics in the United States. And what it means to be progressive has, has really meant that if you're a progressive, it is your job to help our leaders clean up America's image, right? And I think that that really gets down to a lot of what's going on with the alt-right and, and the divisions in the ruling class is that the Soviet Union did a very good job pointing out the actual history of the United States during the Cold War, exposing the history of racism and slavery and the way black people were being treated and exposing the lynching that was going on. And they took the photograph of Emmett Till and his mutilated body after he was killed by white racists and sent it all over the world. And so, you know, there's an understanding on the part of the managerial bourgeoisie, the ultra rich in the United States we need to clean up the image of the American uh, American system, right? We need to get people around the world to think the United States is a bastion of human rights and freedom. And liberals job is to help them do that. And these, you know, these, those who might be conservative are, are helping ruin that image. And so the job of liberals is to clean up the image of the United States, make people think the United States is just this woke, progressive country so that when we attack a country like Russia, like Venezuela, like Cuba, uh, we can do it on the basis of them being too conservative and not part of our woke liberal agenda. Um, and that seems to be the role that progressives are playing, not keeping in mind that all the all the struggle, all the all this, the good things that have happened, all you know, the overturn of Jim Crow, the building of the labor unions, all of these things involved questioning the status quo and going against the imperialists. Certainly, uh, we've we know that. I mean, you and I have something in, in common in that you have, we've both lived in, in the Middle East and in Latin America. I was in Nicaragua when the 10th anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution was celebrated. I also had a hell of a time leaving the country. Uh, the CIA had been doing a number on Americans leaving the country. Long story, but uh, it, it ended up I had to take a very strange route. It's a story in itself to uh, get through from, from Nicaragua to Honduras was easier than getting out of Honduras. Um, but what I noticed in my life 
in Central America, especially in Nicaragua, was how damaging our politics were to the poorest of people. Now, you know, to anyone who's unaware of what happened in that time, there's, you know, wonderful books uh, to, to describe the entire 20th century tradition of, of, of American uh, capitalism and uh, exploitation in those areas. Uh, one is Penny Lynn Rue, and I've now blanked on the title, Strange Fruit, I think it's called. And it's about the history of the United Fruit Company. And it, go, it starts in about 1898. It's a very good read. I recommend people reading. But what I learned living in places like Nicaragua, Colombia, Bolivia, etc., many other countries, but was that people do not view our government or our democracy as benevolent to them. And somehow this post 9-11 period was when W was getting a lot of bad press, justifiably so, by major media, but then it shifted. And have you noticed in the last year, last year and a half of Trump, that the media has been sweet on him. They've been re-scripting George W. Bush. I have seen left, again, these quote unquote left-wing Democrats, they're not that left, putting these articles on their social media feeds and saying, isn't this great? And I'm thinking, did you lose your memory? Are you the Manchurian candidate here? You know what I mean? You've seen it too, right? What's going on? The, 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 the left seems to be eating itself alive. It's losing its own mind. I mean, you know, these quote unquote left, neoliberal left, I'll call them. Well, it's interesting because I use the, the war in Nicaragua. Uh, as a great example of how things have changed. Um, you know, in Nicaragua, there's a socialist government uh, that is popular. And uh, then the United States is funding terrorists and extremists to overthrow that government. And those terrorists and extremists are committing horrendous atrocities. Um, and there, were, there was a mass movement of people in the United States, uh, leftists, socialists, but a lot of Catholic priests and nuns and a lot of pacifists. And raising awareness and saying, okay, we may not like everything that the Sandinista government in Nicaragua does, but it's wrong for the United States to be supporting these terrorists, right? Uh, and it was pretty widely understood on the left that supporting terrorism in Nicaragua, supporting the Contras was a right-wing thing and that opposing them was a left-wing thing. Well, that flash forward to 2011 in Libya, we have a socialist government, we have the US government funding terrorists to overthrow them, um, but it's actually all the people on the right that are criticizing it, and it's the left is going along with it. The same with Syria, right? We have a socialist government, Ba'athist Arab socialist government, and you know the U.S. government is arming terrorists and extremists to overthrow it. And again, it's people on the left uh, that are supporting it, and and it's it's a very very confusing and, and strange situation. But there's one important aspect of the Contra War in Nicaragua that I've done quite a bit of research on um, because this is very important. Um, you know, one of the main, and he was a very heroic individual uh, in the American Indian movement in the United States. His name was Russell Means, uh, and he was known for very heroic actions. You know, he was an ally of the Black Panthers and fighting for the rights of Native Americans. He was recruited by the CIA during the Contra War uh, to, to make propaganda against the government of Nicaragua. And uh, he began working with the Unification Church of Reverend Sun Young Moon, which is a very dangerous, you know, cult of, of extremists from South Korea. Um, and he went across the country during the Contra War as a leftist, as a well-known, you know, Native American activist. He went across the country saying that 
you know, that it was the duty of leftists uh, and progressives to support the Contras and to support the overthrow of the government of Nicaragua because they had oppressed indigenous people. Um, and Russell Means, this progressive activist, basically started using a left-wing narrative uh, in doing work for the CIA to promote the overthrow of the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. Um, and I feel like that was a test case that had never been done before. It was always, you know, the right wing would make the case. Oh, my God. And there was the movie Red Dawn that came out at that time where it was argued, oh, you know, the Soviet Union is going to set up in Nicaragua and soon they're going to take over Mexico. And next thing you know, the USA will be invaded. And, you know, that was the kind of argument, right? The domino theory, the communists are going to come and and, you know, invade and, and you know, socialize your property. And, and that it was this right wing scaremongering used to be the way that they sell sell wars but by having russell Means, native american activist promote war on the basis of of you know if you support native americans if you are opposed to racism against native americans you have to support the overthrow of the government of nicaragua that was a test case and i think it was a positive test case i think they had you know they had success with that one thing that's worth noting is that uh, the top Native American scholar in the United States uh, who just became a target of Fox News during the Iraq war is Ward Churchill. And Ward Churchill, yeah, Ward Churchill, how did he become the top scholar of Native American studies? He was the speechwriter for Russell Means when he was doing CIA work to promote the intervention in Nicaragua. And he rose up the ranks of academia and is now the top voice. And what's interesting is if you read Ward Churchill's writing, um, while he's very critical of U.S. foreign policy and, and exposes the horrendous crimes of U.S. foreign policy, the thrust of his writing is that average Americans are the enemy, right? That average Americans benefit from the crimes of imperialism. Average Americans are racist settlers uh, who need to be poorer. And, and it's very interesting because that's basically what the ultra-rich think too. They think that this middle America, this prosperous middle class that was built up during the Cold War, um, needs to be demolished and the United States needs to be part of a global multinational capitalist system uh, and and in the critique of the Trump movement and the Ward Churchill uh, you know writings you can find a common theme this idea that average Americans are the enemy uh, that they are rabble that when they fight for their rights this is fascism uh, you know that that critique there's a common thread between this left-wing, narrative that, 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 it, that you hear from certain left-wing voices about the aristocracy of labor and the Euro settlers, et cetera, and what the ultra-rich believe, and that there is this weird continuity, and the basis of it is anti-populism. Average Americans are the enemy. Average Americans are racist and sexist and homophobic, and you know, uh, and need, we need to demolish the U.S. economy to be part of this global capitalist system and we need to you know change everything about the united states and that there is a commonality there and it seems like a lot of the 1960s radicals who were very anti-imperialist and very frustrated with a lot of the working class americans who supported the vietnam war and supported racism their contempt um especially if you read the writings of the weather underground bill ayers bernadine dorn the kind of contempt they had for middle america has been kind of hijacked to serve the agenda of the ultra rich as they try to kind of reinvent the world and demolish the the you know the prosperous middle class that that was used to stabilize u.s society during the cold war you're listening to savage minds we hope you're enjoying the show please consider subscribing we depend on listeners and readers just like you now back to our show 
was a professor at the University of Montreal. And the, after my first year, there was a proposed strike of professors. In my department, I was the only one that raised my hand. And I said, I think this is a bit obscene. We make a good living. We should be fighting for more scholarships for our students. Because in my short time there, I had already learned how little students were being subventioned for their studies. Well, that went over like a lead balloon. But skip to what people like uh, Reed called the managerial, you know, class of, of let's say, even Black Lives Matter or whatever. The movement, I don't want to pick on one particular movement, but we're seeing a whole managerial class emerge over the past decade, such that now in order to go onto the mall and wear, you know, one of the pink pussy hats, we're dealing with a whole infrastructure of quite elite organizers of the First Women's March in DC. And that was all steeped within the language of trans women are women. And all these ideological and ideologically thick narratives that a lot of feminists disagreed with. Hence, I am regularly, regularly called a TERF. Um, and so are many women. Because if you say sex, human sex is immutable or you know, you are free to wear what you wish, but I do not see gender as replacing sex. This has somehow become anathema to leftist politics. Um, I'm very alarmed at the fact that the left has gravitated so quickly towards agendas that are either hyper-racializing our ever, every moment of life or hyper-genderizing and, and in a way misogynistically spinning women as needing to have these very old stereotypical ideals. You know, women are in the kitchen, Betty Crocker, pumps, fishnet, what have you. And women pushing back on that are slammed. Anyone who pushes back on the idea that the left is abandoned class politics. I don't mean just democratic neoliberal type leftists. I'm talking even Jacobin wrote a hit piece on uh, counterpunch uh, because of an article I wrote. If women cannot state that sex is real without being called names that try to denigrate them as somehow being right-wing Bible thumpers, we have a problem. And there seems to be this real downgrading of discussion of things today. Everything's become this drumbeat within the left, which very much reminds me of, you know, Jesse Helms' moral majority of the 80s. That was more religiously based. We've abandoned religion on the left, so to speak, and replaced it with a new quasi-religion of ideology that doesn't seem to allow any more debate than did the old doxa of religion. Indeed, and I mean, we're seeing kind of an erosion of, of what the left once stood for. Um, and, you know, I mean, notions are widely promoted that socialism, one of these commentators saying that socialism is just the same as Things are uh, now, except that every uh, every co company is a, a cooperative. Uh, that's one notion I, that I've I've heard widely promoted. Right, socialism just means worker ownership. It means that every employee has a share of stock. Socialism is an employee stock ownership program. Well, that's not what socialism is, right? And that even if every company were directly owned by its workers, we would still have a system of profits in command. 
Um, and that if you read, you know, Marx and Engels, they make very clear that the problem is production organized for profit, not rationally planned for public good. It's not simply a matter of, of ownership. And that imagine if, uh, okay, if every employee of Boeing uh, or some military contractor, you know, they got a share of the profits, wouldn't they be really more enthusiastic about war? Because then their, their, their share would, would, would increase in value that, that, that these kind of notions, very, very simplistic, watered down understandings of, of very important leftist concepts are being very widely promoted. And then, as you pointed out, there is kind of a hysterical atmosphere, you know, somebody, they can't just say you're wrong now, you're a Nazi, and you are on the right, which, I mean, there are plenty of people on the left who disagree about all kinds of things that doesn't automatically make them on the right. And that certainly doesn't make them a Nazi or a fascist, you know, and that, that there is not a calm atmosphere through which people can just discuss these issues. There is, there is this atmosphere that develops where everything and, and the conversation stops really being about what is true and what your argument is, and it becomes you have committed an ideological crime. Uh, you have said there are a list of things you are not allowed to say. There are a list of people that are bad people. Um, and uh, on that list uh, this week are, are you know, um, you know, people who question Russiagate or people who question this narrative or people who, who are this or that. And uh, the question, the, the, the discussion doesn't become, you know, are you correct in what you're saying, but are you one of these labels? Are you guilty of being one of the people on the list of ideological offenders this week that's been sent out by the liberal, by the liberal internet mobs? And, and you can't have a discussion in this kind of atmosphere. Um, and so frequently I will get messages from people, uh, you know, don't be friends with this person on Facebook. They once talked to this person who once talked to this person, this person that they once talked to is no good because they said this about whatever. And I don't play that game anymore. I don't, you know, I'll say to people, look, I, I'm friends with all kinds of people on Facebook or I'm connected to all kinds of people on Twitter that I don't agree with. And so what? You know, I mean, that's this, this is this is how society tends to work. Uh, and this idea that if somebody has one position that you don't 100 percent agree with, they must be canceled. They must be written out of your life. Um, it's very, very disturbing. Um, and it raises the question about social media almost becoming a form of behaviorism. You know, B.F. Skinner, he was the well-known academic uh, who just studied, studied the science of human behavior. And one of the things that you get from B.F. Skinner's work is that punishment is probably the least effective way of controlling people. Because if you punish somebody, even if, if they are, are very, very much at fault, in their minds, they can still feel like a victim. They can say, well, I'm being victimized, right? You're being unfair to me. The effective way to control people is with rewards, right? No one ever turns down a reward. If someone gives you, a, you know, a hundred dollar reward, wow, you know, I love what you're doing. Here's a hundred dollar reward. No one hands it back and says, I don't want it. You know, you're trying to manipulate people. People tend to accept that. And what social media seems to do is it seems to create a situation where we're all craving a constant reward, right? We, we post something on social media and then we check, oh, who liked it? Who liked it? Who liked it? Now we're constantly trying to get that reward of social approval from our peers and we become kind of addicted to it. I mean, and people compare it to gambling addiction uh, where, where we're all trying to get that rush of social approval, right? Is my post sharing? Am I, are there a lot of likes? And that, that we've become kind of addicted to it. And in the process, we've become weaker. 
emotionally, right? We, we are very much dependent on other people's approval. We're afraid to say things that might, might hurt our ability to get other people's approval. Um, it's almost like every person has a, has a rating and you judge people by how they are doing on social media. And that this is very, very effective social engineering and it ultimately results in people being weaker. And if you look at the great heroes throughout history, um, you know, take Joan of Arc, for example. Joan of Arc was a nonconformist, right? This is a woman who thought she could hear the voice of God, put on men's clothes, led her people into battle uh, against the, uh, the English and eventually was burned at the stake. Um, she was a nonconformist and that's why she was, why she was a hero. I um, mean, you know, you take, you know, you, you take all the greatest heroes of history. I mean, who is the, the symbol of modern Christianity? I mean, the symbol of Christianity itself is a man nailed to a cross. He was so hated by society and so persecuted for his, for his teachings that he was, he was killed in a very brutal public way. Um, and the drive in human history, the drive to become heroic, right, where people endure hardship, go against the grain, is kind of being socially engineered out of the next generation. And we develop younger people that are afraid to say anything that might go against the party line uh, because they've been trained to crave rewards. Um, and, it, and it almost raises the question of, of you know, of, of modern psychology. I think there is a, a lot of young people feel very afraid. They're afraid to, to say things that they think. They're afraid to even think things that might go against what they're being told the party line is. But deep down, they want to be heroic. They want to be heroic. They want to be somebody who, who can stand up, but that has been kind of socially engineered out of them. And it's deeply, deeply tragic in my view. Well, I agree. I, I have to question. I mean, I, I like certain aspects of social media. I probably dislike more aspects than I like, however. I do miss the days of the 90s of when the internet meant email. It just meant you don't queue for the post office line anymore <laughs> or as much, let's say. But, you know, I know that from my work in Nicaragua, my work later on the disappeared men in New York, or my work in, on the desaparecidos in Argentina, that political corruption is, is partisan blind. I mean, there is no good Democrat, bad Republican party, but this last week is pretty shocking to me what happened on Capitol Hill, or on at the Capitol, I should say. The fact that people broke and enter and did damage to the Capitol building, all bad. I mean, I don't think anyone would say that was good. It's what I do worry about, Caleb, is the way the media is posturing this, trying to erase it. Let's, I've seen many people on Twitter, let's be done with them, let's just put them away out of history. Like this is a chapter that a lot of people on the quote unquote left want gone. And I think this will be very bad for all of us because again, the disappearance of Parler because of Google, this speaks, this is, oh my God, I, I, I get goosebumps thinking about it because I think of all the times in history when we've seen this, we have read about this, this is not gonna go down well. What on earth is going on where it's now the left pushing on totalitarianism, whoa. Yeah, I mean, there, Biden is coming out. He says we need a new domestic terrorism law. And the thing is, it's already 100% illegal to do what these people did on Capitol Hill. You cannot break into the halls of Congress and damage property and, and, and 
rumble with the police. That is already illegal. So why do we need a new domestic terrorism law? And, and we don't we know so little about it, but listen to the language that's being used in the press. This will be a law to study ideological violence. Like ide they're going to study ideology, right? We already know that the postmodernists think that all ideology is bad, right? That ideology is something that needs to be uprooted. So that's very, very disturbing to me. Joe Biden was a huge supporter of the Patriot Act. Uh, he was very much a supporter of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And now he's coming into office. And I think that, you know, what happened on Capitol Hill in a weird way, it, it's like 9-11 in the sense that, you know, George W. Bush was president um, and he won the election uh, and he was president, but he was not doing so well. And he had a lot of opposition from the Democrats. But after 9-11, that solidified. It was like two years, at least, before any Democrat could really stand up to George W. Bush. And it seems like Biden won the election, but Trump still had a lot of support. But what happened on Capitol Hill has been kind of the 9-11 for Kamala Harris and Joe Biden and the faction that is backing them, namely Silicon Valley, um, and that, that this has given them a political mandate, uh, which is very frightening. Look, I mean, I think a lot of working class people are very angry at the status quo and upset. And, you know, if you look at the far right wing, it's interesting, you know, they talk about QAnon, which is this movement among Trump supporters. They think that that uh, the government is run by Satan worshiping pedophiles and that Trump is somehow on the inside fighting against them. It's a very popular internet conspiracy theory. A lot of the people that broke into capital were adherents of QAnon. Well, obviously the government is not run by satanic pedophiles, but but if you think about it, if people don't have class language, right, if they don't have Marxism and scientific socialism, and they're trying to explain what in the world is going on, why is it that the roads are not being paved? Why is it that there's not, you know, purification of, of the water and people are, are drinking lead in their water? And, and why are we always getting into new wars while so many Americans are suffering? And, and add to that the pandemic, you know, why are, why are all the stores in our neighborhood closing down? Why, why is Walmart and, and Amazon, you know, reaping, reaping the benefits and securing their monopoly while, while working class Americans are losing their jobs and stores are closing all throughout the country? Why is this happening? Well, if you don't have scientific socialism, and if the people speaking in the name of socialism are people who respond to you by saying, shut up racist, you know, uh, it, it makes sense that something like QAnon might fill the void. Um, and uh, that's I think there's a real need to reach out to working class Americans and, and say and especially Trump supporters and say to them, you know, I don't agree with you, um, but you're not a terrorist. Number one, uh, you're not the scum of the earth. You're a working class person. And what's been happening to our country is the result of neoliberal capitalism. And, and just like people around the world in Latin America or in, in Africa and Asia are fighting against this kind of global capitalist system of big multinational corporations driving living standards down, what socialists want is to do the same thing. We want to fight against these big corporations that have hurt your life. You know, you're not being attacked by immigrants. You're not being attacked by, by black people. You're, you're being attacked. I mean, the, this low wage police state that is emerging is about serving the huge multinational corporations. Absolutely. And now if Politico is correct in its estimation from last week, we're looking at Wendy Sherman and Victoria Nuland being tapped as number two and three at the State Department, which is most ironic if you think about last week, given that it was Victoria Nuland handing out biscuits to the protesters in Ukraine not so long ago. And 
I wrote a piece that actually harkened back to someone, uh, Paul Cockshot, a British scholar who said the chickens are coming home to roost, which immediately made me think also of Churchill and his comment that got him into hot water post 9-11, if you recall. <laughs> so the chickens coming home to roost seems to be something that a lot of Americans are not seeing because they are getting their information from CNN. And I have to tell you, biggest shock to me of my lifetime was post 9-11. I was freaked out by the little blips I would see of Fox News on Jon Stewart's show. Skip to, I'm watching the US election and I can't stand watching it on CNN. I skip over to Fox, which somehow bizarrely had a much more tame approach to it. And I can't believe I'm saying it because I'm certainly not you know, on the right. But I was really shocked by the way the media is playing ringleader here. And there's this paradigm that I like to call the clown car. And the clown car for the last four years has been Trump. And the media, you know, the clown car in circuses was used to do a stage swap. So the clowns would come out and the audience would have their face looking there and the lights would be on the clowns. And then in the dark, you'd see all the roadies switching out the trapezes and the nets. Well, you could see them, though. I mean, you know, it wasn't pitch black. You could see them doing their job, but your eyes were supposed to be where the lights were on the clown car. So here we are. You know, it's 2021, and the clown car of Trump is still where these media sites are wanting us to focus. The crazy guy, the red hair, the bad makeup, the raccoon eyes. They, you know, I'm giving some of the ad hominem they give because I actually don't find some of this even appropriate. Um, and yet discussions of what's happening to class, to, to the poor. I mean, you know, re recall in the spring, it was Jimmy Dore who hi highlighted this to me. I was really shocked to learn that Pelosi was actually trying to undercut the monies that people would get for COVID funding. And Americans were totally unaware of this because their own media isn't telling them this. The headlines are bad Trump. What on earth? Yeah. I, and that is the danger. And that shows, I mean, Jimmy Dore is very, very important. Um, and the fact what he did with Force the Vote was really, on the one hand, it was very amazing, but the response to him was terrifying. Um, Jimmy Dore used his platform as a progressive commentator to say, hey, we have a pandemic. Now is the time to demand a vote on Medicare for all, show who's really for it, show who's against it. And uh, he demanded that Ocasio-Cortez and others, you know, withhold their votes from Nancy Pelosi unless Nancy Pelosi was willing to bring Medicare for all to a vote. And the response to Jimmy Dore was uh, to uh, declare him to be public enemy number one. And every progressive voice started saying Jimmy Dore is, a, is an extremist. He's crazy. How dare he say this thing? And I mean, I looked on social media and it said trending Jimmy Dore. And I thought, is it trending for me because I listen to his show a lot? No, it's trending for everybody. And it was like every Democratic Party outlet and all of these socialist voices, supposedly Jacobin and, uh, you know, the Young Turks and all of them were just piling on Jimmy Dore. He was the worst thing. But Jimmy Dore stood his ground and he said, no, you're not going to cancel me over this. I'm not going to apologize for this. You know, now is the time to fight for Medicare. And polls showed that among the the progressive community, among people that listen to, you know, Jimmy Dore or listen to the Young Turks or, or listen to, um, you know, uh, the Jacobin or outlets like that, 
uh, the majority thought Jimmy Dore was right. And so Jimmy Dore, he stood his ground. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to die on this hill. You know, this is, you know, fine. Bring it on guys. And he, he was right. And people recognize, I think largely in the progressive movement that he was right, but it reveals that there has been this whole apparatus created to speak in the name of socialism, to speak in the name of progressive values, that when it really gets down to it, what their job is, is to make people good foot soldiers for the Democratic Party. Um, and that, you know, I, I, I've said to my viewers, you know, I do YouTube live streams, you know, very often I, I have conversations with my viewers. And, you know, I've said to folks, you know, I mean, the way you can tell someone is, as, as on the Internet, one of these socialist voices is not legitimate, is if all they do is feed you what you already think. If they get on there and tell you how bad Trump is over and over and over again, if they get on there and tell you how bad Republicans are over and over and over again, if they just get on there and feed you what, what you already think, uh, that's a good way to, to tell the person is not really legitimate because actually educating people about socialism, actually winning people to, to Marxism and, and all of that involves telling them things that they may not want to hear. Um, and that really there's been this whole apparatus created a network of podcasts and YouTube and, and, you know, the algorithms love them. A whole network has been created of people speaking in the name of socialism who really do the equivalent of what right-wing talk radio has done for many years. Rush Limbaugh, he didn't teach his audience anything, right? He just told his audience, you know, he talks at them for three, he still does it, talks at them for three hours every day about why Democrats are dirty, rotten traitors to the country and you got to support the Republicans. His audience are already Republicans. They hear him saying it. They're more fired up to be Republicans. And that's the end. That's the show. And Rush Limbaugh collects millions of dollars and it's, it's entertaining to people that are already Republicans. And that, you know, there's been a whole apparatus created that simply does that for for the left-wing audience it fires you up against conservatives fires you up against uh republicans and how bad they are and makes you more enthusiastic to support the democrats and you go home well i'm not opposed to supporting democrats in some instances you know i um i don't campaign for anybody as a journalist you know but i i have met ocasio cortez and i think she's a good woman who has good intentions i don't agree with some of the things she said but i think she has good intentions you know all that and i i think that there are people in the democratic party that that do good work but at the end of the day when i'm talking to my audience i'm not just trying to get my audience fired up to support the democrats i'm trying to teach my audience about socialism and I'm going to tell them things that go against what they hear on CNN. And I'm going to tell them things that they don't already think. And I'm going to tell them things that make them uncomfortable. And that at the end of the day, if you're for socialism, you're for a whole new social order, right? Uh, I think Daniel DeLeon, who was a very important founder of American socialism, uh, Daniel DeLeon said the red flag makes no bones about its true purpose. It seeks a new social order. And, you know, we're not talking about about simply defeating the Republicans and, and isolating conservatives. We're talking about, you know, reinventing society. So we no longer have a system of profits and command and, and no longer have a system where huge multinational corporations dominate the world and keep countries poor in order to keep Wall Street and London rich. And this involves learning a whole new ideology and a whole new idea and questioning the way we've been brought up to think under this system. Um, so if, if someone's really educating their audience, they're going to do that. Uh, they're not simply going to fire them up to uh, hate the other side. Um, and you'll notice that. Um, and it seems like, a, you know, Jimmy Dore kind of revealed who's on what side, because all the voices that were condemning Jimmy Dore were essentially saying, we're not here to really educate our audience. We're here to fire up the base 
to be effective foot soldiers for the Democrats. That's what they revealed themselves to be saying. There was nothing wrong with what Jimmy Dore said at, at all. And that response was very, very telling. I totally agree. I mean, go to my wall and you'll see debates raging since last uh, Wednesday over, you know, this is a coup, this isn't a coup. I'm like, well, I've lived in countries where there are coups. And you want to see where countries where there are coups? Look at what our country has sponsored. Yeah. Um, and the coups do not look like a bunch of people taking selfies in a lobby looking for the tour guide for their lost museum tour, because that's what it looked like to me, mostly. Not excuse. I mean, it's tragic, the deaths. Uh, I still have questions about some of the deaths. I'm still digging into that. But what worries me is that people ostensibly on the left are getting now behind punishing brutally uh, the people on Capitol Hill last week, uh, even the ones who weren't inside the building. You know, people are getting fired for even being at the protest. That's crazy to me. Uh, people are losing jobs. And these are the no platforming issues that feminists have been facing for years in the UK, especially um, for saying that gender is a social construction. Go figure. Um, you, you know, we're seeing the disconnect between truth and media. I do have issues with this. Uh, WMDs, come on. They just weren't there. And then you noticed I, uh, at one point last fall, the New York Times right, ran this fake piece, uh, Iran's top nuclear scientist who was, you know, assassinated, basically, uh, they, they, they wrote about how he was the force behind Iran's nuclear weapons program. Uh, you correctly wrote something about how this, there was no <laughs> such program, right? Yeah, there never has been. The International Atomic Energy Agency has monitored every site in Iran. And they have never violated the uh, the non-proliferation treaty they have never violated the nuclear deal there was never any iranian nuclear weapons program i mean there just simply wasn't one that would be a violation of the treaty and every site in iran for nuclear power is monitored 24 hours a day video surveillance if iran was ever trying to develop a nuclear bomb they would be caught immediately and held accountable for that so it's just a fiction and what i remember during the iran nuclear deal Republicans were against the deal because they said it would help Iran get a nuclear bomb. Obama was for the deal because they said he was stopping Iran from getting a nuclear bomb. And I'm sitting there going, Iran is not trying to get a nuclear bomb. At no point has Iran ever tried to get a nuclear bomb. I mean, the, the Ayatollahs, since, the, since they came to power in 1979, have said that nuclear weapons go against their, their teachings. They violate the, you know, part of the reason they raised the slogan, neither East nor West, was to make clear they were not aligned with any nuclear country during the Cold War. I mean, this is just a fiction. Um, and it's a fiction created by Israel. And I think there are divisions within Israel about you know how to go about attacking Iran, et cetera. But, but the narrative that Iran is trying to get a nuclear bomb is just like it's considered fact. And if you say they are not trying to get a nuclear bomb, the response you get from people is, are you insane? Well, no, I'm pointing to what the actual facts of the situation are. Iran is not trying to get a nuclear bomb. They simply are not. And there's no evidence at all that they have been doing it. And all the evidence we have seen has been widely debunked. I mean, one of the most embarrassing examples we saw was uh, the Mujahideen Ikalk, which is this crazy terrorist group. Uh, they, they put a picture on the internet and it was promoted by all the right-wing media outlets. A lot of these conservative voices put it out there and it was a picture of a safe. Um, and it said, this is the safe where Iran keeps its nuclear weapons secrets. Well, here's the thing. Um, people revealed that that photograph was from a, a website that sells safes, 
right? It was from a, a website that sells safe. It was, it was like, it wasn't even in Iran. It was like they went to Google images and typed in safes. And like the first picture they found, they, they, they then released to all the media saying it was the, the picture of the secret safe where Iran, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing, but no correction. And the next time Mujahideen Ikalk comes out with one of their crazy stories, mainstream media is gonna repeat it as if it's true again. Um, but if you come forward and say what is obvious fact that Iran is not trying to get a nuclear bomb, you're you're on the defensive. You have to you know, you're treated as an extremist, whatever. Um, it really shows extreme bias um, in, in all of these things and that U.S. foreign policy narratives really have have so much dominance. Well, there is such a, a will, too, for the general public to believe these lies, which, which shocks me, because going back to I was in New York and talking to friends and they were like, but there's weapons of mass destruction in these countries. And I'm like but there's not. And in this lie, it's just like uh, Russiagate, same thing. Why are people so willing to believe the lie? And now with last week's uh, action on Capitol Hill, uh, insurrection, coup d'etat, insurgency, bloody blah, blah. And it's the Democrats <clears throat> themselves who are pushing for, I mean, I saw calls for capital punishment for some of these people. This is insane. They're they, they seem to have no understanding that handling this incident with a heavy fist will result in worse, not better discussions in the future, <laughs> and in fact, violence. And I, I really worry that now we're seeing big tech, most of which is in bed with the Democratic Party, they are clamping down. We're seeing a very Chinese, a China-styled censorship on media, which I would never have believed. I've lived and worked in China before. You know, I had to use VPN <laughs> to access Facebook. And even then it wouldn't always work. What is going on that the United States on the left is heading towards this kind of censorious existence? And what can we tell those on Capitol Hill? Because they were working class people, badly dressed or what have not. You know, these people were there because they were very dissatisfied with what's going on from lockdown to the effects on their economies. What can we tell these people about their freedom since Everything that they were protesting in the last six days has come to pass. Well, one thing I recently pointed out um, is that, uh, you know, this woman who was killed on Capitol Hill, if you look at the circumstances around her death, she shouldn't have died. Was she breaking the law uh, and by, by breaking into the Capitol? Yes. Did she do things that were, were not legal? Sure. But we don't have the death penalty in the United States for damaging property. We don't have the death penalty in the United States for or being illegally within the US Capitol. And she didn't deserve to die. Uh, I don't agree with a single thing she ever said. I looked at a lot of her content and I can't think of anything that she's ever said that I agree with, but she didn't have to die. Um, and I tweeted out, you know, that Ashley Babbitt didn't, didn't need to die and that, that law enforcement in the United States is clearly out of control. And just like George Floyd and just like uh, Ramarley Graham and just like Oscar Grant and just like, you know, Michael Brown, she didn't deserve to die. And what was disturbing to me was in response to that, you know, that tweet, um, I got people on the left saying how disgusting I was to compare this, this right winger to, to people of color who get killed. And I got people on the right saying to me that all the, the black people I listed, they all deserve to die, but she was a, 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 you know, she didn't. 
Um, and I thought this is exactly what the oligarchy wants, right? They, I mean, why can't we have a conversation about the police state in the United States that is, yes, coming down hardest on black Americans and, and, and like everything, whether it comes to economic, you know, repression, et cetera, everything comes down hardest on people of color, but it's coming down on all of us. All working class people are under threat. And here's an opportunity where people in the Trump camp who deny police brutality against black people and claim that the police never do anything wrong, uh, now here's a moment where we could build some solidarity against the rising police state. Um, but things have been engineered and the arguments have been arranged to make sure that doesn't happen. And that's deeply disturbing, you know, and that, that, you know, I mean, I don't endorse what Ashley Babbitt was doing, but she didn't deserve to die. We don't, we, we shouldn't have summary execution at the hands of police officers in the United States. It's that simple. And, uh, and, you know, and, you know, you know, George Floyd didn't deserve to die. He shouldn't have been murdered by police officers and that the police state is out of control. This is something that we as a country uh, should be coming together to say. And instead we get a, a culture war kind of where, where you're on one side or you're on the other side and the other side wants police repression against the other side. And the other side, the other side uh, celebrates, uh, you know, the, the repression of another side. This is, this is a, a toxic atmosphere. Yes, I recall immediately reading social media and people were saying, well, if this had been Black Lives Matter, there would be far more dead. And I had to respond to that person. And I wrote something to the tune of, there are five people dead. I do not recall one protest last summer, which resulted in five dead at the hands of, well, four at the hands of police. The fifth was a police officer. And I, I also have to question the honesty of such a, such a statement. These seem to be arguments that are made in bad faith to win points. You know, um, are we going to do, as you suggest, look at the problems of police violence, structural violence and poverty, even I would add, or are we going to make this about race? And the left has conveniently hijacked an old code from the 1960s, ironically, with mostly white people uttering these kinds of purity politics about race and spinning that to their favor as if to say, the fact that I'm talking about racism and structural racism, I won't define it, but, and this is where Reed comes out and critiques that too. You've, you see, you've seen McWhorter and Reed say, what, what, where's the evidence of structural racism? I wanna see it. I did you know, several interviews with people um, last fall and, I was really shocked at one point to find myself uh, being asked, but why are we discussing slavery again? Because there is something rinse and repeat within the so-called neoliberal left that wants to make points by scoring the easiest goal instead of actually asking the harder questions. Okay, no one would debate that there are problems of racism, not just in the US or Canada or France. I mean, I've lived in Morocco. You know, Moroccans are loved to say there's no racism there. Of course there is. There's a whole color code to it. There is racism in Mexico. There's racism in, in, in Nicaragua, Costa Rica, where have you. But let's get away from that when we start to talk about, as you point out now, a person died that was filmed by a Black Lives Matter protester, ironically, or he self-described as such. We still don't know the whole story on that. And we watched this woman die. Now, I accidentally came across the video because I really would not have wanted to see it. I was shocked. And I jumped back from my computer. My family was like, what happened? And I just said, no, you, you don't want to know. But 
this was a really horrible thing because the conditions of her even being shot like that, it was totally unnecessary. There was nothing actually happening from her that merited that. There need to be more investigations. But how can we reach the working class on the right that the left refuses to accept because the left is posturing everyone on Capitol Hill as being a racist without their pointy white hat? How can we understand the working class issues of the disillusioned Trump voters. They were there to make a symbolic victory um, score, uh, breaking into defacing a national monument. We can read it symbol symbolically. Okay. But where will they stand after all this? Because you know that they're not going to be represented by the likes of Biden that will use them to point out, oh, these people are racist. So let's just forget about them when they're not in fact likely. Indeed, I, I mean, we just have to do the hard work of, of giving people actual socialism, not repeating the Democratic Party narrative, maybe agreeing here or there if they make a point that is in line with our viewpoint. But at the end of the day, we have to do the hard work of going to the masses with, with class struggle politics and, and not repeating the Democratic Party's line, uh, not, not kowtowing our message to be part of the liberal culture wars, but getting to the masses with a basic class struggle orientation. It's interesting with the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx, you know, it says in it that, uh, that, that revolutionaries support every uprising against the existing order of things. You know, it's in the Communist Manifesto. He says, communists support every uprising against the existing order of things. Not, not every left-wing uprising against the order of things, not every uprising with a, with a progressive veneer to it against the order of things, but every uprising, you know? We should have gone to the Tea Party. I was part of Occupy Wall Street, that was great. But you know, I think there were a lot of people who joined the Tea Party back during the Obama years who were very confused ideologically, but were mad about the problems of capitalism. And we should have been there to give these people ideological orientation. Um, and that there's, a, there's a whole history of this and that, that wherever people are opposing the system, whether it's the yellow vests in France or wherever people are opposing the system and awakening, that's where Marxists need to be with the Marxist message, which is independent of, of whatever the Democratic Party is pushing this week.
Oh, 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 oh,